0: Support your journey to wellness at B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.
1: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan.
2: And I'm Catherine Brobeck.
1: And this week we are doing a little bit of a special episode in that this is our first foray into Agatha Christie as playwright with The Witness for the Prosecution. And The Witness for the Prosecution actually started off not as a play, but as a short story written, not shockingly, in the 20s, which was when she wrote just a, it's just insane to me how many stories she wrote in the 20s. But this one was originally called Trader Hands, and it was written on January 31st, 1925, not in the sketch, but in a magazine called Flynn's Weekly. It wasn't until 1933 that the story was published as witness for the prosecution in the Hound of Death collection in the UK, and in the US it actually wasn't published under that name until 1948 in a collection of the same name. So let's just get into a brief synopsis of what happens in what is, for Christie, a rather simple and straightforward story.
2: So... Witness for the Prosecution basically has two variants of the plot. There's the short story plot, and then there's the play and adaptation plot. But they start from the same premise, which is that a man has been accused of murder.
1: That man's name is Leonard Voll, and he's a good-looking, charming young fellow who's sort of an amiable drifter, short on money, but with an abundance of friends and admirers. He actually reminded me a little bit of Agatha Christie's 'er ne'er-do-well brother, Monty, the way she describes him in her autobiography. But unlike Monty, this man has been charged with murder, the murder of one of his admirers, Miss Emily French, a rich elderly spinster who we're told has eight, that's right, eight cats, and who takes a liking to Leonard after he rescues her parcels from an oncoming bus. The only other person in Emily's life is her housekeeper, Janet McKenzie, who, unlike Emily, is not at all a fan of Leonard, and Janet is the one who discovers Emily's body, bludgeoned to death with a crowbar lying next to the body. Janet had been out of the house all that evening, but she had actually popped back in at 9.30 to retrieve a clothing pattern, at which point she remembers hearing Emily speaking with a man— Janet is, of course, convinced that man was Leonard Vole, and that it was Leonard who murdered her, the motive being money, since Emily French had recently altered her will to leave everything she had to her new friend, Leonard.
2: And the primary witness that was supposed to be for his defense is, in fact, his wife, um, a woman named Romaine.
1: And the reason why is that Romaine can vouch for Leonard's whereabouts at 930, proving that the man Emily French was talking to could not be him. Leonard swears he was home by 930, and he says that his loving wife, Romaine, a beautiful and enigmatic Austrian woman, will, of course, swear to it. However,
2: she decides, in a short story at least, very quickly after meeting with Mr. Mayhern, the defense um, solicitor, that she will, in fact, not be testifying for the defense. In fact, she hates her husband she hates him so much, she can't even like describe what he did, but like God forbid, she testify on his behalf, so she is going to become. A witness for the prosecution.
1: However, there is a catch here, which is an evidentiary law known as spousal privilege. And we'll get into the ins and outs of spousal privilege later, but essentially what it means is that a wife cannot testify against her husband. But Romaine, ever full of surprises, reveals that she isn't actually married to Leonard. That she'd been married to someone previously when she was an actress in Vienna. Ding, ding, ding. Actress in a Christie story. Let's all note that. And this man was named Heilger. And Heilger is still alive, though in a madhouse, so the marriage to Leonard is invalid, meaning Romaine is free to testify against Leonard. And poor Mr. Mahern is at his wit's end, but then on the eve of the trial, he receives a letter from someone saying that they have information about, quote, that painted foreign hussy, i.e. Romaine Heilger. The letter directs Mr. Mayhern to, quote again, a ramshackle building in an evil-smelling slum, where he meets up with this woman in a poorly lit room. She also has masses of hair and a scarf hiding most of her face, until she draws aside the scarf and reveals a hideous scar. Apparently this woman had a gentleman friend who Romaine Heilger stole from her, and when the woman tried to get him back, the man scarred her hideously. So this woman basically wants to get back at Romaine And she has in her possession a letter written by Romaine Heilger to this man, which very conveniently mentions Leonard's innocence and her intentions to send him to the gallows so she can at last be free of him. Cut to the trial, where Romaine takes the stand as a witness for the prosecution and says that Leonard is guilty of murder, but then is seemingly caught in this lie when that letter is produced. She breaks down, admits that she was lying the whole time, and that Leonard is in fact innocent. And Leonard Vol goes free. The end. Oh, but wait, it is not the end. Not even close. Because...
2: Uh-oh. Turns out that her dear innocent husband... da da Was guilty all
1: along. The idea being that if she had merely testified in support of her husband, saying he got home at 930 when he claimed he did, the jury would have thought she was just lying for her husband. But if she played the role, remember, she was an actress of the scheming foreign mistress who hated the man she called her husband, but was then caught out in her lie, when she then reverts to the testimony in support of her husband's innocence, the jury will believe it. And that is, of course, exactly what happens. And it's worth noting she uses her acting skills here not only on the witness stand, but also to play the role of the hideously scarred woman with the aid of poor lighting and makeup when she meets with Mr. Mayhern and provides that letter, which she, of course, just wrote herself. What it essentially is, it's actually a motif that's very common in spy novels. It's, it's a double cross. We think that this wife is crossing her husband because she hates him, but in fact what she's doing is merely pretending to do that and working for him all along. And in the short story, we mentioned that it was called Traitor Hands, and that is a it's a significant title, and I think also shows the way that the focus of the story shifted as it went from short story to play, because the short story even though a court case is happening in it, is not really all that much about the courtroom process or the ins and outs of the trial itself. It's really mainly happening off screen. What it essentially is about is this woman who ends up being sort of a double agent for her husband and actually winning the case for her husband. And the way that we find out that she has been doing this is that she has a tick, With her hands where she clutches her hands and the lawyer who is sort of our protagonist in the story notices that she does this when she's appearing as herself and then when she appears as this horrible disfigured woman she makes the same unconscious gesture that of course is a trick that we saw in a recent Christie novel also used sort of at the denouement of the novel but much in a much more silly way which was in the big four I mean, number four, who's supposed to be the big arch villain of the whole book, gets felled by the fact that he has an unconscious habit of dabbing at crumbs on the table with bread.
2: Yeah. If
1: you remember correctly. <laughs> so I thought it was interesting. Unfortunately. That, yeah, I thought it was interesting that this short story has a little bit of that goofy Christy clue about gesturing and the pitfalls of acting in it before it morphed into what is a lot more of a sophisticated courtroom story with a title to match the witness for the prosecution it has slightly humbler beginnings but the one thing that I will say about the short story that I appreciated and that gets lost in the play and then all the subsequent adaptations that we're going to talk about is the ending I think this is the best ending. It
2: has a perfect ending. Oh
1: my God, it's perfect. (laughs) I mean, this is a O. Henry kind of short story ending that you want in a story like this, where the wife just coolly informs this lawyer that I did all this, not because I knew he was innocent, but because I knew he was guilty. Final line, mic drop. What I love about it is that the character of this lawyer, he's so nervous and... You can only imagine what his reaction to that line would have actually been. But we never get to see it because we just get the last line. So we're kind of put in his place as like, oh, my God, did that wait? What just happened? Like, it's just so effective and it's so elegant as a short story, which is not.
2: It's it's laid in pretty well, surprisingly, because there are actually a bunch of towels earlier on. I mean, to say that this is a mystery short story, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, there's no mystery to it. I mean, it is simply. Well, there is the clue of the hands.
1: That's the deduction. There's a
2: clue. There's a clue the hands. And then um, it's actually um, earlier on when he's telling her, oh, this looks very bad. She asks him point blank. Well, does it matter that there's not a corroborating witness about the time that he comes home? And she's like reading his courtroom right. strategy while she's plotting on her own about how she's going to get her right. husband off. And it's like it's written in there pretty well, but. It's that mic drop at the end that just says killer. Literally.
1: Yeah, it's the rare Christie that doesn't really bother much with the trappings of either red herring or side plot clues or for quite frankly, real clues. I mean, in all of her other stories, we see a lot of smoke uh, where there isn't necessarily fire just to confuse the reader, but there's no confusion here because it's really just a story about what this woman does and how she pulls it off. There's some trappings of when exactly did the murder take place and when did he get back, but it's not complicated. I mean, we know that the murder happened at 930. It's kind of ridiculous that they say the coroner knows for sure that she had to have died between (laughs) 930 and 10 based on the temperature of the body, which makes absolutely no sense but that's no. fine like we just we need for all these things to be simple because the focus of the story is really on this woman on character and yeah. that's the thing i mean the focus of the story is character i think witness for the prosecution more than anything else we've read thus far is a really strong argument against the idea that christie never created interesting and vibrant characters, these characters, and not just Romaine slash Christine, the double-crossing wife, Leonard Vole is a, I think, terrifying character.
2: In
1: the play, I actually think even in the short story, I think he's chilling. The way in which he is presented as this friendly, chipper, just oh, shucks, I just kind of love that guy. Like he's one of those guys that everyone just kind of likes. Honestly, I mean, this is going to be a really weird, dark reference to make, but he's he reminded me a little bit of Ted Bundy. Yeah,
2: sure, because he yeah he <laughs> helps mean, her. E- he helps everyone said the Ted street. Bundy
1: was like that. Yeah,
2: like he, yeah, he that's how Ted people, Bundy
1: got his victims. Yeah, he helped people. Women take, like, thought like their he was grocery, handsome and charming. Yeah,
2: grocery bags or whatever. Yeah, and like, exactly. whoops, now you're the next victim.
1: And the way in which the murder happens too, you know, people often talk about how antiseptic or how Christy is the original cozy writer in that none of her murders are violent or in any way upsetting. She could have easily chosen that Leonard Vole murders Emily French via poison, but it's actually very right. important to the The story, I think that he savagely beats her over the head and that she dies in a really violent, bloody way because it's part of what's so creepy about that ending when the wife just coolly says, Well, of course, I know he was guilty, that this charmer the whole time is this (laughs) cold blooded killer. It's, um, Cool, really and, well, done. and
2: Romaine, Romaine is apparently equally as cold.
1: Right. Going into a, a greater discussion about the play, and again, this is the first play of Christie's that we've discussed. And the play was actually written much later than the story. It was first performed at the Winter Garden Theater in London on October 28th in 1953, transferred to Broadway the next year. And Christy herself actually did not want to adapt the short story and she she wrote about this in her autobiography and she said I didn't want to write it I was terrified of writing it she was in fact forced into writing it by the producer of the play and she was particularly worried about all the legal procedure that would be required once it was actually being adapted into a play because she knew that it would have to be more of a courtroom drama than the short story was. And even though she doesn't say it, I'm guessing she might have been thinking back to the disaster that was the courtroom sequence in the original version of The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which, you know, the biggest (laughs) note her editor has was the courtroom scene's not working. Can you just have them all go to a drawing room? Which is just so funny because then that, of course, created the archetype for for, for, yeah, check. for mystery, for whodunits uh, ever after, um, up to this day. But she really dug in hard on the courtroom procedure of it, and she actually spoke with barristers and solicitors, and eventually she ended up really enjoying it, and usually she said that this was actually her favorite of the 19 plays she wrote. She wrote 19 plays, which is also pretty amazing. You know, it's just worth noting that she was also a very successful playwright. We all know that The Mousetrap started in the early 50s, it's still running, and she's just... Had a ton of plays produced and that continue to be produced to this day. But it's worth noting what she said about the ending of the play versus the ending of the short story. Because as we mentioned, the short story ends with Romaine saying, yes, I knew he was guilty and she got him off and they presumably get Emily French's money and they live evilly ever after. There's really no comeuppance for them. (laughs) But in the play, what happens is that after we get that revelation, this woman runs up to Leonard and hugs him, kisses him right in front of Romaine. And we realize that Leonard has actually been two-timing Romaine the whole time with this other woman, and he has no intention of sticking with her. He's just going to cast her off. There's actually mention made of her age. The mask comes off, and he's totally brutal and says, you're too old anyway. And she grabs a knife that had been in evidence in the, the trial and kills him. So he finally gets yeah. his his comeuppance, and the thing is, this altered ending was actually really important to Agatha Christie. She said that she had to fight desperately for the ending to that play. Quote, nobody liked it. Nobody wanted it. Everyone said it would spoil the whole thing. Everyone said you can't get away with that and wanted a different end, preferably one used in the original short story I had written years ago. But a short story is not a play. The short story had no court scene in it, no trial for murder. I stuck out over the end. I don't often stick out for things. I don't always have sufficient conviction, but I had here. I wanted that end. I wanted it so much that I wouldn't agree to have the play put on without it.
2: Which is so weird.
1: I agree. I mean, honestly, I, I love the ending of the short story because I think the pitch darkness of that and they lived evilly ever after matches the darkness of the story. And I just think it mm-hmm. all comes together. And it's just such a like, I, you know, I said it was elegant. It's tough. And I think she just grew uncomfortable with the idea of him not getting his comeuppance.
2: The thing that's interesting about the short story is something that's interesting in a lot of mm-hmm. them is that they have very abrupt endings. This one happens to be, I think, the only one where, yeah, there's an abrupt ending, but there's also no, like, crammed in justice, you know? There's right. no, like, last minute, and then Scotland Yard showed up with no notice.
1: Or, and then they died in a fiery crash, even an extra legal justice, right. absolutely, there's zero. <laughs> right,
2: yeah, and so the fact that she felt like she had to course correct, all of those years later, odd, because, you know, the people who were telling her that she should use the original short story ending, they were right. It's a a better, more effective ending, and it's not It's not...
1: I will argue this, though. I agree with you in terms of elegance of storytelling, again, because I think the pitch-black ending matches the pitch-black tone. However... There's one element here, and we can just get into how progressive I think this story also actually is. Basically, a Witness for the Prosecution, I think, pushes against all of the arguments people generally make about Christy, that she's bad on character, that she shies away from violence, that she is stuck in her own time and completely conventional when it comes to the way that she depicts foreigners and women and even justice. It belies all of those arguments. Arguments, which is why I really love it, but what she does with this ending is that she clarifies that the true villain of this story is Leonard Voll, not his wife or the woman who is at least living as his wife. And I think that in a way, this matches a theme that we've noticed in a lot of Christie, which is the ultimate fear comes from people who aren't as they seem. People who are hiding behind a mask of conventionality or uprightness, but who are, in fact, murderers or who are just bad and amoral people. And she's not. The thing is, everyone is expecting her, and she leans into it, right? She plays the role of this old woman saying, we're going to give that foreign bitch what she deserves. This is a foreigner saying that, knowing very well that she's living in a country where most people are going to hate her on sight because of her (laughs) accent.
2: Ironically, the same foreign group works in both the immediate post-Great War short story and the post-World War II play. <laughs> convenient.
1: It's, it's such a perfect 20th century story because it shows how the 20th century did not progress at all. If, if anything, there was greater prejudice against German people after World War II rather than World War One. It's just like we, like nothing changed. But in fact, I think the big bad of this story is Leonard Voll because he's the one that's pretending to be, convincingly pretending to be a good guy. Everyone likes him. Even the lawyer who is perceptive is taken in by him. And she's someone that everyone is is suspicious of from the beginning. And she actually in that altered ending, turns out to be a faithful, wifely person who truly loves him and is truly distraught and does a horrible thing, but is not soulless. The soulless person is Leonard, and in the short story, they're both, they're both soulless. soulless. Yeah, soulless. Or it's at least mud- it's muddier. It's not clear. They both, but they both seem to be soulless. So I'll give it that. The themes are a little tidier. In a way that I don't mind, it's just the storytelling is not as elegant, and it's really hard to pull it off well. Marlena Dietrich almost does it in the Billy Wilder movie. I don't know if she completely does, but I don't think you're going to get any better than that.
0: You're not his wife, never have been. You're years older than he is. We've been going together for months, and we're going away on one of those cruises, just like they said in court. Tell her yourself, Len. Yes, Len. Tell me yourself. All right, Diana, come along. You can't, Leonard. Not after what I've done. I won't let you. Don't be silly. I saved your life getting you out of Germany. You saved mine getting me out of this mess so we're even. It's all over now. Don't, Leonard. Don't leave me. Don't, Leonard. Don't. Pull yourself together. They'll have you up here for perjury. Well, don't make it worse. Or they'll try you as an accessory. And you know what that means. I don't care. Let them. Let them try me for perjury. Or an accessory. Or... Ready? Oh, better yet,
2: let them try me for. I kind of feel like this is one of those plays that if you decided to do it in a really bad community theater production, yeah, it would probably be very hard to watch.
1: Oh, yeah, it would be terrible. And let's actually just shift into an, a discussion of the movie as well. So there's a classic movie that is very much based on the play which was adapted by Larry Marcus, Harry Kurnitz, and Billy Wilder from the play, directed by Billy Wilder, and that was released by United Artists in 1957-58. And Leonard Vole was played brilliantly by Tyrone Power. Sir Wilfred, who is the barrister that argues the case, is played insanely brilliantly by Charles Lawn. And Marlena Dietrich plays Romaine, who in this version is called Christine. I agree that I think it's the power of the acting performances that pulls it off, but I think that the adaptation is brilliant also for two reasons. One is that there's a lot of comedy injected into the story, mainly through the interactions between Sir Wilfred, Charles Lawton, and his nurse, because the whole time he's recuperating from a heart attack.
0: beautiful day. I've been hoping we'd have a bit of sun for our homecoming. I always say it's worth having all the fog just to appreciate the sunshine. Is there too much of draft? Shall I roll up the window? Just roll up your mouth. You talk too much. I'd have known how much you talked. I'd never have come out of my coma. Teeny, weeny steps now, Sir Wilfred. We must remember we had a teeny, weeny heart attack. Oh, shut up. We'd better go upstairs now, get undressed and lie down. We? What a nauseating prospect. Upstairs, please. Are you aware, Miss Plimsoll, that while in my sickbed, I seriously considered strangling you with one of your own rubber tubes? I would then have admitted the crime, retained myself for the defence. My lord members of the jury, I hereby enter a plea of justifiable homicide. For four months, this alleged angel of mercy has poured,
2: probed, punctured, pillaged and plundered my helpless body while tormenting my mind with a steady drip of baby talk.
0: Come along now like a good boy.
1: All this bantery lightness that I think when you get the ultimate contrast of just how dark what's actually happening here, that's all been under the surface. For me, the contrast really worked. And there's also this moment at the end, which Christy did not have in her play, where even that conventional nurse, who is the prototype of probably a isolationist conventionally thinking person in fact she has a monologue earlier in the movie where she talks about how these foreigners shouldn't be allowed to marry our men so she is totally prejudiced against marlena dietrich
0: Sorry for that nice Mister Vole, and not just because he was arrested. But that wife of his, she must be German. I suppose that's what happens when we let our boys cross the channel; they go crazy. Personally, I think the government should do something about those foreign wives, like an embargo. How else can we take care of our own surplus? Don't you agree, Sir Wilfred?
1: She is completely on her side in a way at the end because she is. She knows that Sir Wilfred, the lawyer, is then going to. Continue to defend her, and she is clearly in favor of that at the end, which I thought was, was just like a really interesting button on it. I
2: think there are some really interesting thoughts on adapting this from Billy Wilder. There's a really great early aughts book um, that Cameron Crowe wrote called Conversations with Wilder. It's literally, he just got all of this time towards the end of Billy Wilder's life to have all these conversations about his entire body of work. And
1: it was Cameron Crowe. Yeah.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Cameron Crowe was like an obsessive, Crazy. yeah, obsessive Billy Wilder fan. And he hoarded Billy Wilder. First of all, he talks repeatedly in the book. Like Lawton was one of his favorite actors. He thought Lawton was an absolute professional. And apparently Lawton showed up early. He stayed late and he collaborated and came up with additional ideas. He was essentially like a director's actor. I thought this was kind of interesting. Cameron Crowe was asking about um, the shots. So in a lot of the shots, Lawton is framed separately. He's not in the Mm -hmm. master shot. He's just allowed to fill the screen. And so Crowe asks Wilder about if that was a cinematography choice. And Wilder says, no, I told you that when we had a big scene coming up the next day, Lawton would come to my room and he would do that big scene and he'd know every word. Then he would do it differently. Then he would do it another way 20 times. And he was better and better and better. I just had to choose. Crow, would you shoot it 20 different ways? Wilder, no, no. We'd rehearsed it the day before. So then we were kind of happy with version number 20, let's say. Then he would come to the studio the next morning and he had an entirely different idea of working up to the big line. Or are you not a liar? He had the idea of staying quiet, working up to it. So we did it. We kind of combined 20 and 21. The whole thing we did in one close-up. You could see the whole up and down, the scale of the actor.
0: And now today you've told us a new story entirely. The question is, Frau Helm, were you lying then? Are you lying now? Or are you not, in fact, a chronic and habitual liar? Hmm.
2: Which is, like, <laughs> really a kind thing about, like, a director to say about an actor, I think.
1: So the film was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Actor in a Leading Role, Charles Lawton, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Elsa Lanchester, Best Director, Best Film Editing, Best Picture, and Best Sound. Marlena Dietrich was nominated for a Golden Globe, but the studio didn't want to campaign for her as they might give away the twist ending. Lanchester also won the Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress for her performance. It's funny to me that Elsa Lanchester is the one who, <laughs> who got more of the accolades out of that. Although, I mean, Marlena, I did think it was an interesting choice that in the play, as Christy wrote it, she was very clear that when Romaine slash Christine is appearing as this other woman, who is supposedly incriminating herself. Right. She's supposed to have her face half covered. Right. And then at one point reveal that part of her face, and it's all scarred. And I think as Christy was conceiving of it, would really be covering, like, legitimately half of her face. And I thought it was interesting that they made the makeup choice to not really cover any of Marlene Dietrich's face, and just give her this crazy makeup job that made her look like a different person.
2: Yeah. It, was,
1: it, it, it Question, was bizarre. Yeah,
2: very questionable, I think.
1: She does a fairly good job of covering up her German accent and pretending to be a cockney. I think that's what she was going for.
2: <laughs> right, yes. Want to kiss me, ducky?
1: But, um, that, I mean, that is like the kind of line and sequence where the high school production version of that, it would just be... So awful. Oh,
2: for sure. The only thing I would say about Dietrich is that she's a little bit old for the role. I mean, I don't say that as ageism, and, like, she's obviously great in it, but there's something about her that is so inherently tough. In the short story, as an example, Romaine is described as being very quiet Mm -hmm. and intense. And Marlena Dietrich certainly has an intensity about her, and she can certainly... Be quiet in long periods and
1: intense. She she has a, a a quiet intensity about her. They
2: had faces then, quoting another Wilder movie.
0: Still wonderful, isn't it? And no dialogue. We didn't need dialogue. We had faces. There just aren't any faces like that anymore. Maybe one Garbo. Oh, Those idiot producers. Those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them. I'll be up there again, so help me.
2: But there's something that seems like she would be less histrionic. It's hard to, you know, because you just don't see that in her character. You know, you don't see that. I like, think it's
1: hard for her to, I agree. It's actually the scene in which she has to break down on the witness stand and and yell and scream. It's not entirely convincing. No. I think she's the kind of person who would recede into herself, and I don't think she would give anyone the benefit of hysterics in that way. You know, Marlena Dietrich is Marlena Dietrich, so it's it's great.
2: I hadn't seen it in a long time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's very watchable still.
1: It really is. The one thing I will say that I thought was interesting, at least in the play where there's that reference to... Romaine being older than Leonard obviously Christie herself at the point at which she was writing the play was in a marriage where she was significant, she was 15 years older than yeah. her second second husband Max Mallowan, and that was something she was sensitive about that she was so much older than him so i just thought it was interesting that she made a point of highlighting that 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 was the way in which he was cruel to her at the end of the play Yeah
2: no i it's a, that's a totally interesting
1: point so on some of these Christie stories and novels we have just one adaptation witness for the prosecution is one case where we have so many and just really quickly there were a couple of tv adaptations and we can gloss over two of them
2: although we should be clear we should be clear we didn't watch these so maybe we shouldn't have glossed over them
1: that's true. We're glossing over them. We're not saying that they're not worth a closer look. There's only so many adaptations of Witness for the Prosecution that you can watch in a week. <laughs> there was one in the 50s starring Edward G. Robinson, and then there was a 1982 Hallmark Hall of Fame adaptation of the Wilder okay. movie with Diana Rigg, which is, I'll bet that's actually really good. And Bo and
2: Bridges. That one
1: actually probably is, is really worth revisiting. But alas, we did not revisit it. What we did watch was the 2017 BBC version that aired just a couple of weeks ago. And that was adapted by Sarah Phelps, who also adapted, and then there were none last year. And it is another very high production value adaptation. The BBC is going to be doing a number of these. Putting which a is,
2: lot of money into oh these. Oh,
1: boy. Yeah, which makes us very happy. So this one stars Andrea Riseborough as Romaine, and she is back to her original name. And this adaptation is very much...
2: It's a... Sh- it's, it's the, the short, short story. story. It's not
1: the it's, it's not the play. It's not the Wilder movie. They really went back to the roots. Although they did make some changes, which we'll discuss in a second. So Andrea Risborough is Romaine. Toby Jones, the fabulous Toby Jones, is Mr. Mayhew, the lawyer. And Kim Cattrall, a.k.a. Samantha Jones of Sex and the City fame, <laughs> plays the rather it's randy like her, it's, it's, like assembly t- French. it's like her
2: actual official title is um, (laughs) Kim Cattrall of Samantha Jones fame. (laughs) Um. Samantha,
0: where are you going? I'm going to splash some water on my face and then I'm going home. And I will not be judged by you or society. I will wear whatever and blow whomever I want as long as I can breathe and kneel.
1: Here's what I liked and but what I both liked and did not like about this adaptation. They took certain elements and themes that are there in the short story and they really brought them out. But I think they, in some cases, brought them out too much. There are some on-the-nose issues, I think, in this adaptation. But there's a lot that's really working well. And it cannot be overstated that the production value of this thing was so high and it was so gorgeous. Crazy gorgeous. And also,
2: I mean, in Andrew who's probably never been bad in anything. And I think the same might be able to be said about toby jones too they're just Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. carrying the plot of this
1: if you're going to pick people to play a role that Marlena Dietrich and Charles Lawton did, pick these two They're
2: playing, and they're playing them in very different completely ways completely
1: different, yeah, and obviously this adaptation leaned into that, they put it back into the 20s so this was a post-World War I story rather than post-World and they, War and II they pull
2: the, and they pull a lot of the elements that are directly in the short story about characterization
1: the one thing that made I think Toby Jones's job a lot easier is that in the play adaptation and the subsequent Billy Wilder film Charles Lawton plays Sir Wilfred Fred who is the barrister right who actually tries the case because in the UK you have a solicitor who represents a defendant but then a barrister who actually argues it right. in court and in the short story that character there is is not really no. there it's Mr Mayhew is is a solicitor so he's the one that's actually doing the investigating and talking to people and they went back to that character so it, it is quite literally a different character right. from the character that Charles Lawton was playing in Toby Jones he's essentially like a public defender and he actually really reminded me of another. Another great miniseries this past year.
2: Oh, John Turturro's character?
1: Yeah, the character that John Turturro plays in The Night Of, which is a public defender type who is desperate to defend anyone and kind of falls into this case and then runs with it when he realizes that he has something interesting, which is always a fun trajectory right, for a also
2: questionable innocence and like weird, quirky health problems. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, yes. Yeah, I actually love the fact that they turn the whole cliche of someone coughing into in a TV show or a movie on its head where that always means that they have tuberculosis has- and are, are going to die.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, he does have pneumonia, right? Isn't that no, he has, he has bronchitis.
1: He has bronchitis. I'm sure that he thought he had like some crazy lung infection. I mean, when he coughs up blood, in any period piece, if someone coughs up blood, they have tuberculosis and they're going to die. But well, I thought except, it was really okay. funny that they're like, oh, you just have bronchitis. You're fine.
2: <laughs> well, and also because he's been telling everybody the entire time that it was from gas inhalation during the war.
1: Right. One, and I think this kind of encapsulates what I, again, admired and sort of had had issues with in this adaptation. For example, in this adaptation, they really lean into the sexuality of Emily French, which is why Kim Cattrall was a good casting for that role. I
0: don't like old men, Leonard.
1: I like young men. I like their
0: company. I like their skin. I like their muscles.
1: Their musk. Their gleam. Their vigor. Their heft. And their spring. I like to look. She is extremely sexual. She's feeding Leonard Vole by hand. There's a scene in while which he, he is... Bath. Mm-hmm. Yeah, while he takes a bath. Yeah, while he takes a bath. You could argue that that is making for a steamier sexier darker story and like that's totally appropriate and it's implied in the story which it absolutely is but for my money I preferred the on its surface congenial kind of adorable interactions that were happening between Emily French and Leonard Voll in the Billy Wilder movie because then you're thinking at the end of the movie and then this guy turned around and hit her on the head Blood spurting everywhere. I like to me that is infinitely creepier than the already on its face somewhat creepy relationship between Emily French and Leonard Vole in the BBC adaptation.
2: You're right. I think it is less Ted Bundy and more like oh, I can kind of entirely see where this is going. It's weird know?
1: because it's this catch-22 where it, it, that is in fact less true to Christy. By being more open about the elements that she was hinting at in the story, you're actually being less Christy because the whole point is that the creepiness factor comes from the fact that people are pretending to be other than what they actually are. That their surface selves are not who they actually are on the inside. That's always where it's coming from and we don't really get that here. I
2: think that they make the exact decision in this that the main character is Romaine
1: yeah,
2: and so we do get that with Romaine I think this was broadcast in two parts in the UK Mm -hmm. you can tell where the episode break is because it's where her performance turns and up until that point she definitely comes across as vulnerable and like potentially just sucked into this and like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. devastated I think that the decision here was less to, you know, shade the Leonard character and more to make her really the villain of this. I mean, yes, uh, Leonard still bashes Emily French's head in, but in this particular version of it, this just certainly goes back to the short story Stance that she's as bad, if not worse than she's the as bad,
1: in that she might even be the brains. But wh- what it also does, actually, and this is one area where I think it was so much better, actually, than the Billy Wilder adaptation. I think the the weakest part of the bill or the weirdest part of the Billy Wilder adaptation is when we first meet. We get a flashback of Leonard and Christine meeting, and mm-hmm. she's performing in front of all of these soldiers, and they essentially attack her. On mass, but it's treated comedically. Even though they literally rip, almost like rip her pants up to her thigh, yeah. and <laughs> what he's sort of getting at, and and the the BBC adaptation does this so much better, is that Romaine slash Christine is sort of a damaged person from whatever happened to her during the war, and you know we definitely get that sense in the BBC adaptation because the first time we see her, she's literally cowering in a trench. Uh, in World War One, right. And she makes reference to the fact that she was a showgirl and that the soldiers had a lot of uses for someone who could be a showgirl and entertain them and that it, she was spared. She wasn't killed like her friends and family were, but it didn't feel like she was lucky at the time. So, that, I mean, the obvious read on that is all sorts of sexual abuse. That's much more in the forefront. And it's done probably because of Andrea Rosborough's acting very convincingly and powerfully, I thought. It informs that character in a way that they were maybe kind of trying to do in the Billy Wilder version, but certainly did not pull off.
2: Right. Whether or not any of that is true, given that fact that you're dealing with a master Mm -hmm. manipulator, the question about whether or not any of her background is actually true is something that i think could be left open to Oh, absolutely. She might
1: have been it might all it might all be made yeah, up. Yeah,
2: i mean the only thing that i would say is it in this adaptation writes this in heavily that both of them are down on their luck and both of them are so in theory damaged from world war 1 that they are blaming basically they're willing to be amoral because they think that what happened to them and to their generation of family and cohorts, they think that they were failed. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, both of them seem to believe that any kind of moral responsibility has gotten out the window.
1: Yeah. To them, the social order broke down during World War I because of what they saw happening around them slash whatever, what happened to them. So they've just decided, well, there's no point in being a good person because being good is meaningless. And this is also where I had an on its nose issue because we have a parallel theme playing out with Mr. Mayhew in that he's trying to reconnect with his wife. Their son died in World War I. And then they have this scene where she essentially tells him, I'm never going to forgive you because you're the one that encouraged him to go. And you both went and you thought it would be this great father-son thing. And you came back, but he didn't. And I will never love you again. I'll, I won't leave you, but I'll never love you. It's never going to be the same. So, of course, he walks out into the ocean and drowns himself. The end. Yeah, It's a pitch black ending, but it takes it even further, I think, than the short story, because the point of the short story is that these people are just terrible and they did it. It worked. They pulled the wool over everyone's eyes. And again, they're going to live evilly ever after. But in the BBC adaptation, it's kind of like... The world is just a such a damaged place after the horrors of World War One. It's about a collapse of world order or society. And I don't think Christy well, was being the, that big with her message.
2: No, I don't think so. And it's actually done a heavier than that because we're not talking about the fact that poor Janet the maid. Oof. In this version, she is such a member of the old order. Mm-hmm. And so... To add to the blackness, it's poor Janet who uh, gets hanged.
1: Yeah, I mean Janet hangs for the murder that she that she did not commit, and Mayhew unwittingly contributes to that. The only other thing I think that we haven't really touched on in all these adaptations, which is driven home as well in the BBC adaptation, is just the misogyny. <laughs> I mean as a part she's yeah. she's Romaine slash Christine mm-hmm. as a foreigner, so there is that. But there is also this idea of just the fact that she's a woman and the idea of a woman not supporting her husband and what that means. And here's where, just to touch really briefly on the whole spousal privilege thing. Interestingly, we think of spousal privilege as a wife can't be compelled to testify against her husband because if she's testifying about confidential communications, that's just harmful to marriages in general. And we want to promote harmony in marriages. The origin of the spousal privilege is that a wife testifying against her husband is a form of self-incrimination since legally a wife doesn't exist. So, a wife is... When you marry, you become one person. The wife ceases to exist. The the single woman is now a non-entity, and she is her husband. So, a wife testifying against her husband is a violation of self-incrimination, which is just insane.
2: It's really deeply upsetting. It's deeply
1: upsetting, and honestly, that pervades any of these adaptations, and it's why... Romaine is able to pull off what she does because once she actually testifies against her husband and then is forced by men to go back on that testimony and be revealed for the liar that she is, everyone just believes it.
2: And she's smart enough to know that. Right. Or evil enough to know that, possibly, depending on how you want to look at it.
1: Yeah. And in the BBC adaptation, that scene compares very favorably with Marlene Dietrich when she breaks down on the witness stand because she andrew riseborough starts screeching you have lied to the court
2: you have lied under oath
0: there is a penalty for that expect to pay it you men take her down you men You men! You fucking men! You fucking men! Order! You order! You, you men.
1: It's well done. Like it, it feels real, and it, it is real. There is a real anger there. Yeah,
2: well, that's that's. <laughs> how- no, and that's how, she, that's how she's plotted all of this out. And then it's funny, the, immediately after she's taken away, they go on to talk about the perfidy of women.
1: Right. And Mayhew goes to her in, in her, the cell that she's being kept in and has his own sort of sadistic moment where he says, who's weak now, where he's, he just makes it clear that he has the upper hand and she literally hisses at him. Like a cat, and that's also, I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. It dovetailed nicely with the still shot of Emily French's cat licking blood off its paws, which was also, like, within the first five minutes of this, I was like, okay, this is different. It's interesting.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The barrister says to Mayhew, he says, this is, like, the only alibi for Leonard is Romaine, and he looks at sort of dossier on her and he says something to the effect of, well, when the court hears actress, they'll think whore. And when they hear Austrian, well, we know just what they'll think then.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it's like, okay, yep, xenophobia and misogyny. Yep.
1: xenophobia and, and misogyny. Um,
2: you know... Our favorite Christie trope of never trust an actress.
1: (laughs) It's, yeah, never trust an actress. But for once, often when we're bringing up xenophobia and misogyny with Christie, we're lamenting the fact that she's buying into the stereotypes of her day, but here she's playing with it and she's using it for purposes of her story. And she's the master of it rather than being the mastered by it.
2: Right. Unless you consider the fact that her absolute evil, (laughs) cold-blooded villainess is, you know, an Austrian
1: all of the misogyny and xenophobia that she's encountering and using to her own ends yeah, are not used being,
2: as an actual plot. It's a plot it's device. It's a plot device. It's
1: acknowledged. It's not something that she is just exhibiting unknowingly or unwittingly, which unfortunately happens a lot in Christy, where you're like, oh, she has no idea that, that this is actually incredibly xenophobic or will see, eventually read as misogynistic. <laughs> she knows exactly what she's doing and what she's playing with.
2: Oh, for sure. This is not one of our many, 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 <laughs> many instances involved. Um, let's say anybody from East Asia
1: (laughs) yeah yeah is the witness for the prosecution. Join us next week when we will be discussing another Poirot short story. This one is The Kidnapped Prime Minister. In the meantime, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com allaboutagatha, or visit us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find me on Twitter at Kemper Donovan. You can find Catherine at Brobcat, you can find us on Instagram at all about Agatha, or just email us at allaboutthedame@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you visit us on iTunes, please take a moment to rate and review us.
2: See you next week.
0: Thanks.
1: Bye.
2: Bye.